Good morning. It's great to see you today. We are continuing this series on the Old Testament and particularly how we as Christians relate to the Old Testament. This is the third part in this series. We are um, pushing back the Marcionites that invade the land once again. Remember, he was the second century heretic that asked Christians to abandon the Old Testament, and they seem to have a resurgence today. Um, you know, one can't be, can help but be struck by Jesus, uh, for example, in John 5.46, where Jesus says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me because he spoke of me. Isn't that amazing? Or Jesus on the road to Emmaus, when he's walking along in, uh, in Luke 24, and he says, uh, he begins to open up and tell the two on the road to Emmaus, goes through, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the things that were said concerning himself. Wouldn't you love to have that sermon series? Um, wonderful, wonderful things that are, that are there. Uh, one of the great hopes that we have is that the Old Testament would not be viewed as like some kind of legalistic trap out of which Christ delivers us. That is not the way to look at the Old Testament. But rather, as Martin Luther said, he said the Old Testament is the, the cradle and the swaddling clothes of Jesus. It is, the, it is actually where we first find Christ presented to us. And the rest of the New Testament is unfolding that great thing. If you've not seen the recent book by Richard Hayes, uh, it's a great book. It confirms a lot of what he's written in the past, but his book, Reading Backwards, it's a great text. He's dealing just with the Gospels, but how the Gospels understood their Christology through the Old Testament. And he's the one that made a helpful distinction between uh, not simply seeing the Old Testament as prediction of Christ, but as what he calls prefiguring of Christ. That's exactly what we're trying to unfold through looking at the four figures that are most uh, examined in the New Testament from the Old Testament, Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David. And what I've been trying to show to you is that if uh, one of the ways you can introduce the Old Testament to your uh, future congregations is by introducing them to Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David, uh, because these four figures become the pivotal points around which the New Testament is built both in how we see ourselves and also how we see a lens to see Christ. So Adam, we saw, we relate to him racially. The whole human race relates to Adam. Uh, Abraham, we relate to uh, redemptively, which is what we're looking at this time and next time. Moses, uh, quite dramatically, both legally, prophetically, priestly, a lot of ways relate to Moses. And of course, David, we relate to royally or regally. All those become very important um, constituent parts out of which Christ is finally revealed to us. Last several weeks, we saw how in the Garden of Eden that we entered into the fellowship of the rebellion. We were in Adam, and we partook of the fruit, which I called an anti-sacrament. If a sacrament is an outward invisible sign of an inward and spiritual grace, it's an outward invisible sign of an inward and spiritual rebellion. So by taking the fruit, we enter into the rebellion. We don't have to worry about how sin is passed down because we were there in Adam. We sinned in Adam. We were there participating in the event. Remember the, the little mall sign, you are here. And so Adam, uh, we, we become, we're, we, we were a fallen race. And so we saw how the human race was ineligible to rescue itself because of that, because all humans have fallen. And therefore Christ comes as a second Adam, and everywhere we blew it in Adam, Christ gets it right. 
And he, he obeys where Adam the first time disobeyed and how Christ turned the clock back. And at that, in the second garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, not as the first Adam did, not your will but mine be done, but Christ says, not my will but thine be done. And we have the great reversal of the second Adam who rewrites the history of the human race and rewrites the history of our lives and rewrites our own rebellions, all our own no's to God gets swallowed up in the great yes of Jesus Christ. And so we're slowly seeing how the Old Testament is actually unfolding for us how Christ becomes the prophet, the priest, the king, the new lawgiver, the suffering servant. All of these things begin to unfold for us slowly in the time of Christ. Now, that actually is why I want to raise my first question going into this text today in Abraham. A lot of time has gone from Genesis 3 to where we now land in this next section on Genesis 12. Why did God take so much time and you can even ask the question further, it's still a long way before Christ comes. If, in fact, the whole human race is ineligible, we can't get ourselves out of this pit, why in the world didn't God say, okay, let's let like the daughter of, of uh, you know, Abel or Seth become, be, a, be a virgin and bring the Messiah through uh, her, and let's go ahead and get this thing dealt with. Why not just strike while the iron is hot? You know, the fall had happened. The smell of uh, smoke was still in the air. Go ahead and deal with it. Instead, we have this long, slow development. And we finally get Abraham, and then still much more waiting for Christ comes. Why? Three reasons why. There must be many, but three that I can think of. <laughs> we have Lawson Stone here. He can give you 12 more probably. <laughs> At least three reasons why. One the fall is so precipitous. You know, this is not like, you know, the stumble of man. This is the fall of man. The fall is so precipitous, so deep, so profound, it's like a long time to prepare us to actually receive a Savior into the world properly. So there's a lot of building blocks, you know, the concept of sacrifice, forgiveness, priesthood, God's holiness. I mean, on and on and on. There's a lot of things that have to be rebuilt to bring us out of this hole. Secondly, uh, from kind of a big picture perspective, because there's only one solution to the human race problem, uh, it, Christ's entrance is going to solve everything going backwards and going forward. It's not going to have a problem with that. So Abraham ends up as saved no different than how we're saved, whereas he's saved through faith like we are. He just trusts God's provision in ways that he doesn't know. We trust God's provision in ways that we do know, but there's no real difference in terms of how people get saved, really, Old or New Covenant in that sense. So in that sense, it doesn't really matter. Now, the third one, and this brings me to our text today, and this is not only, I think, a great biblical point, but a particularly important Wesleyan point, is that God will not be a sole victor. All right? The whole point of this is not simply to get us back to Eden. See, if it was just about turning the clock back and getting that initial decision right, it could have been done by Seth's daughter or Abel's daughter. But instead, God is intended to build a kingdom, to build a community, to build a church. And that's going to involve a lot more trolling through the whole of the world to every people, tribe, and tongue to bring the gospel and the good news of what God is doing. That's a very different pro project. We'll see that already today in Genesis 12. In fact, amazingly, when we get back the last forever ago, when we did the series on Mark, those of you who've been here 10 years will remember. But 
you'll remember recall that in that very pivotal moment in Mark 18, or, or actually Matthew 18, it's also, of course, in uh, Matthew 16, verse 18, also in Mark, but particularly explained in Matthew. In Matthew 16, 18, when you have that pivotal moment where Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. What do you expect Messiah to say at that point? Because actually at that point, this is where we are reminded of, oh my goodness, Jesus remembers something that we've already forgotten. Because what he does not say at that moment, which if I was writing the script, this is what I would have written. Thank God I didn't write the script. At that point, when Jesus, when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, I would have had Jesus say, and on, in three days, I'll be put to death, and in three days, I will rise again, and the gates of hell will not prevail against me. That would be a great moment. But instead, Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Isn't that interesting? What, what he's saying is, it's not just about my victory, it's about your victory, about our victory. He's going to bring us along with it, every tongue, tribe, and nation. And of course, this is the great, you know, synergistic aspect of salvation. He won't do it without us. Whether he could or couldn't is another matter. He won't do it without us. He won't redeem the world without us. He won't bring salvation without us rolling our sleeves up and being part of it. That's, that's the beautiful thing about the gospel. So when we get finished Genesis 3, we're just blitzing through all these generations. We are on warp drive going through Genesis 3, 4, 5, 6, just moving at massive warp drive. Genesis 10, the table of nations, 70 nations blitz through there, and suddenly we go into, you know, from warp drive into impulse drive, if you're a Star Trek fan. There must be a, you go into a kind of an idle mode here. So everything really slows down. Now at this point, in Genesis 11, they, they want it, we kind of read with the whole Tower of Babel, everything kind of stops, and we have this amazing kind of exploration of what the fall actually means is not just, you know, personally ruining Adam and Eve's lives. The kind of the, the, kind of the, the great emphasis of the whole thing, the, the big picture of it. In fact, in the Genesis 11 passage of Terra Babel, five times the phrase is used, the whole earth, the whole earth, the whole earth, five times in that passage. And if you recall, there's three things that are set out in the Tower of Babel which you'll see Abraham reverses. You see that, first of all, they want to settle down. You know, they're traveling on the plains of Shinar, and they said they want to settle down. They want to build a tower to heaven. They want to make a, finally make a name for themselves, make their name great. Now, you recall that when you turn the page, this is 12, we see God has a very different plan unfolding. He tells Abraham, don't settle down. You're to be a pilgrim. Okay, the people of God are pilgrims. We're not settling down. We're pilgrims. Okay, that's a big difference from the settling mentality of Genesis 10, 11. And then we're told that we're not only are we to uh, not settle down, we're to not build a city. Okay, Tower of Babel was a sinful act. They used bricks. So it's a man-made thing. All things emphasize the man-made nature of it. And said, of course, Abraham was looking for a city whose maker and builder is God. He's not looking to build his own city, his own tower. And we're told, thirdly, that Abraham, uh, he won't make his name, God will make his name great. 
So we see actually this overturning of, or this contrast between Tower of Babel and the Genesis 12 uh, covenant that is really our main text for here. Now the way this thing is structured is, is beautiful. It's a, it's a chiasm. That's the, the big X, right? Chiasm, it's like a, a mirror text, you know. Um, man was not made for Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man, all right? That's a perfect chiasm. All right, so whenever you have a chiastic structure, it comes to us as a way of giving us a picture of what God's doing that's actually embedded in the language itself. So in this, in this covenant, you have Abraham, Abram still at this point, Abram leaves his land, he leaves his father's house, he, uh, he leaves uh, his, his own family, all right? So he had this, where Abraham leaves the land, he leaves all of his people, he eventually leaves his own father's household, and then we're told by doing that, God blesses him, God blesses all those who bless him, and then God blesses all the nations of the world. And the great thing about whenever God gives you a chiasm like that, that God's chiasm always is greater than whatever you, let, whatever you did on your side of it. You know, so here you have a situation where certain things are left behind, but whatever God does is always much greater than that. So we talk a lot about what we left behind to come to, you know, Wilmore, Kentucky. But when you get to heaven, you won't ever remember anything you left behind because your inheritance is so profoundly greater that it won't really matter. It'll seem kind of petty, actually, right? So here you have this amazing uh, text where God, is, God enters into the situation. We're now kind of, now we're landed in human history. A- Abram has left these things, and, and, we, and the text actually picks us up in the middle of the action. The Lord had said to Abram, so he's already on the move, and then God blesses him and promises him this amazing blessing. Now this particular covenant really comes down to three basic promises. We want to look at the bottom line this, the, today. We'll look, look at all three briefly. At first, it's clearly a personal blessing to Abraham, to Abram who become Abraham. Because here he is, his wife is barren, he has no offspring, right? So suddenly he says, you're going to have a lot of offspring. That's a personal blessing to Abram. That's why he becomes Abraham. In fact, in the course of the covenant, as it's repeated, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, it's, there are multiple metaphors. There's three main metaphors given. Your descendants will be as stars in the sky, right? As sand on the seashore and as the dust of the earth. So you have three metaphors that are like God saying, you're going to have a lot of descendants. That is a really a big blessing for a person that has no children, whose wife is barren. He's 75 years old. Well, then you get into the second level, which is a national blessing, where he said, but you're going to possess the nation. You're going to possess the land. I will give you all these lands. There's a clear uh, blessing and promise. That's what we call this, the promised land, the land promised to Abraham. They're going to possess the land. And then finally, the third part of the blessing, which is the one we're going to look at today, is I'm going in your seed, all nations will be blessed. And this is the important part. This is where we get brought into this great tapestry. Now, when the, uh, the second text we read, Genesis 22, we'll look at more next time I preach on this at the actual sacrifice with Isaac. That's not for today. But you'll notice the latter part of that. After that sacrifice, this is what he says 
And this is the, the covenant restated to Abraham. And listen to the language of it. All three parts. I will surely bless you, verse 17, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky as the sand on the seashore. That's part one. The, the personal blessing to Abraham, and it invokes both the stars and the sand imagery. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. Okay, so here you have them taking possession of the land. That is a national blessing. This is where Israel will eventually emerge. And then verse 18, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Okay, now Genesis 12, 3, it says, and all peoples on earth will be blessed. It's called mishpahot. All families, all peoples will be blessed by you. It does not use, it's not, not geographic language. It's not countries, political units. All families will be blessed through you. It's a pretty powerful promise. Every family, every ethnic group will be blessed through you. And in this passage, it used kol goe. It means uh, all nations, the, the peoples, the ethnic groups of the world will be blessed. Okay, then you go over, it gets repeated to Isaac in uh, Genesis 26. Listen to the same three things. I will bless you. I'll be with you. I'll bless you. For you and your sins, I'll give all these lands. I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. There's the stars in the sky. I'll give them these lands. That's the geographic thing. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me. Again, it's the kol goye, all nations, all people groups. And then it's repeated again in Genesis 28 to Jacob. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You'll spread out to the west, the east, the north, and the south. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Again, kol mishpahot. It's again, all families of the earth will be blessed through you. Now this is, a, this is remarkable because what you see from the very first day of the covenant, God is re revealing his hand that this is about the, all the nations on earth. Every tribe, every tongue, every language is in God's plan. Now that is a big difference from the kind of narrative that we often hear in the church, which says the Old Testament is about Israel. In the New Testament, we discover God's love for all people. Or, or finally, we get the Great Commission where he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. But actually, all of that is merely fulfilling what God said to Abraham. That's why Paul says in Galatians 3.8, he says, God announced the gospel in advance to Abraham when he said, in your seed, all nations will be blessed, Galatians 3.8. So Paul sees Abraham, this text, Genesis 12, as the gospel being announced in advance. So God is saying in advance, I'm going to reveal to you my plan, which is for all the peoples of the earth to be blessed by the Messiah. This is amazing. All this is being unfolded right here. So you get this all through Scripture. You know, Psalm 2, uh, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You get this in uh, Psalm 67. You know, I, I will bless you, Lord bless you and keep you. It's a re reference to the, uh, you know, the great Aaronic blessing. But then uh, I'll bless you so that you may be a blessing to the nations. All of this comes through all of every strand of, of Scripture. Isaiah, nations will come to your light. Uh, kings, the brightness of your rising. All of this about the nations streaming to the good news of the gospel. 
And amazingly, when, when they're in their you know, exilic anguish, and Isaiah prophesies about it, there's this marvelous moment, Isaiah 49, where the prophet Isaiah has this amazing insight into kind of the big picture, where this is all headed. He remembers Abraham's covenant. And so at some point, in the, there's this dialogue unfolding between God and the Messiah, the, the servant, the, the suffering servant. And there's a, kind of like a little bit of an uh, amazing kind of point made. He says, in Isaiah 49, 6, it is too small. Hear that. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. Let me just stop there. What he's saying is, you know, think about it. you're a Jew, you're in the, you're in the midst of a, a Babylonian invasions, you're in the event of a Syrian co-opting, you know, all of the, the dynamic between the north and southern kingdom. This is a time of complete anguish. So if you were to stop a Jew on the street, as it were, and say, what's your greatest hope? What's your greatest desire? He would say or she would say, to see Israel be brought back from exile. Put us out of our misery. Restore us the land that he promised to Abraham. You see, that's how we, the, the phrase promised land comes off our tongue so easily. It's coming to our hymnology. We completely get that point. What we don't have in our lips is promised nations like we have promised land. So what happens is, in this text, Isaiah says, it's too small a thing for you to think my only purpose is to deliver you from exile, bring you back. Too small a thing for you to, to restore my people, bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you a light to the nations, to the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Amen? I mean, that is the vision. It's not a new vision. It, Isaiah doesn't get it, you know, from his, from his own back pocket. This comes from, from Genesis 12, 3. That's always the seed out of which all this flows all the way into the New Testament. So later, when, remarkably, when Paul, in the book of Acts, chapter 13, Acts is, uh, Paul is there in the, uh, you know, they had this problem with the, with the Jewish opposition. So finally, uh, Paul takes his, the dust off his feet, and he goes uh, into the, the, the Gentiles, going to preach to the Gentiles. So he's kind of asked for a, uh, you know, explanation. What, what are you doing preaching to Gentiles? And listen, listen to what Paul says. He says, if I can find it, here we go. Okay, Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're, they were all, the Jews saw the crowds, they're filled with jealousy, abusive against Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas answered him boldly, we had to say the word of God to you first, but since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. And this is amazing what he then says. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. And he quotes Isaiah 49 6. I'll make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring us salvation to the ends of the earth. Now what's so amazing is what Paul says there. When he quotes Isaiah 49 6, he does not say, this is what the Lord commanded him. Isaiah, this is clearly addressing the Messiah, the, the suffering servant. No, no, this is what the Lord said commanding us. We become participants with Christ in fulfilling Isaiah's vision to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Remarkable, remarkable. 
And this, of course, unfolds throughout, throughout the text. In fact, you know, one of, the, uh, one of the remarkable disappointments in Scripture in terms of what we've done to it is when we put in all the chapters and verses. My wife and I are having this wonderful experience right now. We're, we have these New Testaments they've now put out recently that have no chapters and verses. And every morning, we'll read several chapters to each other uh, with no verses and chapters. It's amazing what that does for you. I'm looking forward to the Old Testament coming out without chapters and verses. But one of the most critical ones that they've done is the separation of Isaiah 53, Isaiah 54. And what happens that 53, of course, we know so well, right? It's almost like we can requote the whole passage. This is that great, uh, wonderful passage which has the messianic vision. You have the, uh, you know, the cross. You know, he took our infirmities, carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The whole thing is so well known, and it ends up, he poured his life into death. He was numbered the transgressors. He bore the sin of many, made intercession for the transgressors. Bang, the chapter stops right there. And so we often quit reading right there. The very next verse is about the implications of that for the nations of the world. All right? You will, you will, you will dispossess nations. You'll, the cities of the world will belong to you. You'll enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. Spread out to the right, to the left. Do you know that when uh, William Carey the, so, the so-called father of modern missionary movement, 19th century, when William Carey launched the modern missionary movement in his famous sermon about expect great things, attempt great things, and one of the most famous sermons in the, in the history of sermon, uh, uh, sermons, do you know what text he used to launch what became the great century of missions? Isaiah 54, 1 and 2. It's unbelievable that he would understand that connection, that this connection is there between God's promise to send a Messiah and the movement to the nations of the world. One of the great gifts of the Wesleyan vision is that we understand that it's not just about our salvation, it's about our being instruments of God's grace to the world. It's missional, it's always missional. Now look back over history and I think about how we are connected to a movement that's being passed down. This is the great heritage which is ours. And we, we've seen this develop over the centuries, but we see the faithfulness. Just to give you some examples from church history, first century, we have the Apostle Paul bringing the gospel, moving out into new areas. Second century, we see with Justin Martyr. Third century with Tertullian. Fourth century with St. Augustine. Fifth century, St. Patrick to the Celts. 6th century, Gregory the Great. 7th century, Aidan, apostle to the English. 8th century, Boniface to the Germans. 9th century, Cyril Methodius to the Slavs. 10th century, meet Vladimir, bringing the gospel to, up the steps of, of Russia. 11th century, Anselm, the, our first Archbishop of Canterbury. 12th century, Francis of Assisi. 13th century, Thomas Aquinas. 14th century, John Wycliffe. 15th century, John Huss. 16th century, Martin Luther. 17th century, Philip Spinner and the whole pietistic movement. 18th century, John Wesley, why not? <laughs> Francis Asbury, whatever. 19th century, William Carey. 20th century, Billy Graham and the whole global church movement. In 21st century, it's you and me. That God's called to 
We're bearers of this. See, we're connected all the way back to the original promise of Genesis 12, 1 to 3. We want to make sure we don't miss that point. Well, when I was in June of 84, if you could have been by my side, I think it must have been the third week of June, whenever conference was that year, North Georgia Conference, you would have seen me as a panic-stricken man because I've been assigned to a church about two and a half hours north of Atlanta. And so I had been, you know, I was assigned there, we moved in there, we were all excited, you know, starting our ministries, etc. And uh, the day came for me to be ordained. So I traveled two and a half hours down to Atlanta to be ordained. My, my parents are coming, it's a big event, I'm going to get, you know, the bishop lay hands on me and anoint me to preach the gospel to give the sacraments, and to be faithful to God's holy church. I get down there, and uh, I'm looking around, you know, we're in, like they, went, they sent us to the robing room. I get down there, and everybody in the room has got, they got all putting their robes on. I didn't have a robe. I left my, I mean, actually I had one, but it was back at home. It never dawned on me that you'd be ordained in a robe. I know it was like, ridiculous, I should have thought of that, but I just never thought of it. So I realized, oh my goodness, everyone has a robe but me. So I went to the presiding DS or who was organizing the whole thing. The bishop, of course, was untouchable. But I went to the DS and I said, hey, um, I don't have a robe. And he said to me, you can't get ordained without a robe. I was like, oh my goodness. Three years of seminary. <laughs> Countless hours of prayer and fasting and trusting God and receiving God's call, God breaking through in the night called me to preach the gospel, and I left my robe in the house. <laughs> and he was like, emphatic, you can't get ordained out a robe. And so I, I was in this panic. And so I, I rushed out to uh, the pastor of the church that was there with a large church in Atlanta, and I said, do you happen to have an extra robe? Because if I don't get a robe, I can't get, I can't get ordained. He said, I do have an extra robe. Come to my office. Well, this guy was a giant. <laughs> He's like six foot three. He put this robe on me, and I literally looked like, you know, David in Saul's armor. <laughs> All right, there's no way I could, I, would, I couldn't possibly walk up the steps without falling on my face. So I said, it looked really fun, funny to be like hiking up this robe. And I said, I can't wear this robe. I, I got to have something. It, but the DS said, no robe, no ordination. I thought, my, my whole ministry is on the line. No future for me. I'm going to end up painting houses the rest of my life. And so he said, wait a minute. He says, we have some acolyte robes for kids. <laughs> so I go into the uh, acolyte, they have acolyte room. You know, they have these, in the big churches, they're liturgical. They have these uh, people come through in these black robes and light the candles, you know, Sunday morning. They had these robes. So I found the largest one, and I squeezed into it, buttoned it up. I was like in a straitjacket, but it was a robe. And I got ordained that night. <laughs> so in the pictures of all the ordination classes, all these people in these beautiful robes, you know, and there I was stuffed inside an acolyte, black acolyte robe. But it was later that I actually was reading text from the 16th century that did so much good for me on this point. 
Because I'd always thought ordination was, you know, kind of half done because I got ordained in an acolyte robe. And so I was there reading, and the whole thing was raised in this text about apostolic succession. And as you remember, of course, the Protestants were, were claimed to be illegitimate. We shouldn't ordain people because we weren't part of the Holy Church. We were protesters. We were put on the outside. And at one point, uh, they raised the question in the text, what is it that puts you in apostolic succession? Because that night, when I got ordained in the acolyte robe in 1984, I was given a little card, which I still have in my office. And the card basically says, you know, John Wesley laid hands on Thomas Koch, who laid hands on Francis Asbury, who laid hands on da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, all the way to Bishop Ernest Fitzgerald, who laid hands on Tim Tennant. And I have a little card which sows my apostolic succession, as it were, back to John Wesley. But this little passage in the 16th century told me that card wasn't so important after all. And maybe it wouldn't have mattered if I didn't have my acolyte robe on. Because what it said was, do you know what puts you in apostolic succession? It is not first and foremost, because somebody laid hands on you. Though that's a wonderful thing, and that's a cherished thing for all of us when that happens. But at the end of the day, what puts us in apostolic succession is if we preach what the apostles preached. If we teach what the apostles taught. If we do that, you're in apostolic succession. If you don't do that, you're not. I don't care who laid hands on you. All right, so what we are seeing here is that in Genesis 12, something is being set into motion by God. It's a grand narrative that's going to encompass all the nations of the earth. The gospel is already being preached in advance to Abraham, we're told. And we're told this is about every nation, every people, every ethnic group, all families we've blessed in you. Paul even has this great Midrashic moment, again in Galatians 3.16, where he says, when Abraham, when it says in that text, and in your seed all nations will be blessed, Paul says, guess what? It doesn't say, and in your seeds, plural. It said, and in your seed, singular, all nations will be blessed. Why? Because that seed is what? Who? Jesus Christ. So you see, from the very beginning, the New Testament is tutoring us to see that even there in Genesis 3, Christ is present, promising blessings to the whole world, every people, tribe, and tongue. So in Revelation 7, 9, when you see that great vision of John still yet in our future, men and women from every tribe, every people, every tongue before the throne, that is fulfilling the promise made to Abraham. And that's what we get to be a part of. That's what we are a part of, a virtue of our presence here the gospel cannot be reduced to simply forgiveness of sins, though it's never less than that. It's about restoring us, reconciling the nations, ruling and reigning with Christ, being revealed as the bride of Christ, ushering the kingdom, the consummation of the new creation. All of that we're called to be a part of. The global witness of the church is nothing more than the overflow of God's promise to Abraham. So it's in Abrahamic, the Abrahamic promise, the core of the Jewish covenant, that we find, in fact, we are there. And just as we were in Adam in our sin, now in Christ, 
in the second Adam, in the same way we find ourselves in Abraham. We are in that promise. It is not something about them. It is about them, but it's also about us. We are part of that. We become part of this great movement of God through Christ into the world. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that on the very first day of the covenant, we already heard the last day. We, are, we thank you that on that dawning of the covenant, we already see the new creation. We see the new Jerusalem descending. We see the church called the bride of Christ. We see people from every tribe, tongue, and language before the throne. It's all there in seed form. We thank you, Lord. Help us to be the bearers of the fruit of that seed in and through our lives. Help us to see that the gospel is not just about ourselves and our own reconciliation, justification, but about our being elected to bring your gospel to the ends of the earth. Help us, O Lord, to to capture that vision this day and to capture what it means to be the people of God in the world, bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.